You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. I expected a how-to manual. Instead, I got a primer in how to be counterculturally Christian in these strange days after the deterioration of Christendom. Now, perhaps those aren't the words that you would expect to hear in reference to a book about funerals, but that's exactly what Jason Biasi says about today's guest and his book. Today's guest is Dr. Tim Perry, and the book is Funerals for the Care of Souls. It's published by Lexham Press. It's part of the Lexham Ministry Guide series, Funeral for the Care of Souls. And indeed, it is such a countercultural text. Today's guest is Dr. Tim Perry. Tim is the academic dean at Providence Seminary in Manitoba. He's been a guest before on the podcast, Scholarship on Mary and on the Pope as well. If you are a pastor and providing care is part of your role, if you are a pastor and providing leadership during funerals is part of your role, then today's podcast is for you. In this podcast, you will expect to hear a couple of practical tips, but I think you'll also get to hear our countercultural viewpoint on the important practice that funerals provide and the important opportunity that funerals provide as well. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shapit and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Tim. It's great to have you. Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be back. Funerals for the care of souls. Can you give us the quick version on what it would prompt somebody to write a book about funerals? Well, my experience is, is pretty atypical, but like my collection on Benedict XVI that we talked about the last time I was on, this came as a result of an invitation. My editor at Lexham, Todd Haynes, uh, who's become a good friend over the last few years, knew that at the time I was working in a funeral home and uh, they were putting together the, the new Lexham Ministry Guide series under the uh, leadership of Harold Sankbeel. So he asked me if I would like to write the book on funerals. And I said, well, sure. And so I did. But I think just about, just about everyone else has commented on the book that they were expecting a how-to guide. And I think, honestly, that's what they were expecting, too. And uh, that might have been what I was expecting when I started to write the thing. But uh, it's not how it ended up. It's, it's a very different kind of book, I think. So what kind of book is it? Obviously, we had the, the quote that referenced the book at the start of the podcast, a countercultural manual. Take us into that. What about funerals done Christianly is countercultural to funerals done not Christianly? Well, the short answer is everything. The longer answer is a bit more complicated. As, as I reflected on the project, I thought about growing up in our small town and how everybody when someone died, everybody had a role and everybody knew their role and no one had to talk about it. It just kind of happened. 
uh, and everybody's funeral was a church funeral. If you had a friend from uh, 10 miles up the highway or 10 miles down the highway who passed away, you, you might go to a Catholic funeral, but that was about as exotic as it got. Uh, it was either in the United Church, the Pentecostal Church, the Anglican Church, or our church. I was thinking about that, and and my own experience at Bible College and seminary was that we had no discussion on burying the dead. Uh, again, I, I, and I don't think that was an oversight. I think that was a, a vestige of what Jason in his blurb called Christendom, where everybody knew their role, and so it didn't need to be talked about. But in my work at the funeral home, uh, it became clear to me that because pastors weren't being trained in the Christian way of dying and death, they were by and large just uh, buying into a, a pretty dark secular vision of, of dying uh, that had little connection to Christian faith, that offered uh, little hope of the resurrection of the body. Uh, that said very little about Jesus. A friend of mine once called a typical Christian uh, funeral a retirement roast where the guest of honor just happened to be absent. And, and that was my experience too. It, it, it ceased to be a, a Christian worship service and had become something else. I took the opportunity to, to reflect theologically on, uh, on the four last things and then apply those reflections to the practice of of caring for dying people and burying the dead. So in the book, you do talk about the four last things of death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And then you do move into some of the pastoral role as evangelist, as liturgist, and so on. So there is a, a blend of theology and then some, some practical implications, let's say. And there are some guides in how to be with the family after, after death and, and how to construct a service. And yet at the same time, the pastor going into these roles is unable to do too much impressing of their will. Sometimes you have families and they say, we have no idea what, we do, what we're doing. We really need a guide. And the pastor is able to work, hopefully, hand in hand with the, with the funeral director or whoever else is giving oversight to the process. They're, hopefully they're able to work hand in hand with them and they're able to give quite a bit of guidance. But other times the family has an agenda or has, has something in mind that they think will, will properly honor the dead. And the pastor is kind of tasked with, well, just religiousify it a bit, right? Make, make it a little bit religious, right? Just add that kind of spiritual element in that kind of in between. I'd love for you just to talk to how can pastors navigate some of the difficulties of that, right? And you can go into, maybe you can go into practices or just some, some wisdom, or maybe you can help us think about, how can the pastor enter into that cultural moment where the family is used to a funeral happening outside the context of Christendom? How can they do that gently, but faithfully as well? Well, I think the first step before you can convert a family, and I'm using that language is provocative, but I'm using it on purpose. The pastor has got to be converted himself. And, and, and maybe the first step towards that conversion is, is to recognize that there is in fact a tension you're, you're not just the religious professional brought in to say a prayer at the beginning, a prayer at the end, and MC the in-between. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get that there's a tremendous amount of pressure for pastors to do that. As an on-call clergy at the local funeral home, that was kind of the assumed posture that I would have to take. So 
the first thing to recognize is that there is a tension and, and that tension should be, first of all, not between you and the family as a pastor, but in your soul. Mm. A big step, I think, is just recognizing that it's there and, and honoring it and um, recognizing the uniqueness that you bring to it. Uh, so the second thing I'd say is, is uh, honesty uh, with the family. In my book, I talk about a family that was sent to me to, uh, to help plan a funeral. And in the course of our conversations, uh, it became clear that they wanted nothing to do with Christian faith which is entirely their, their right and, and privilege. It's not my job to argue them into it, and certainly not in that context. In that moment, you know, I had to decide, am I a religious professional providing a service or am I a Christian pastor? You know, as gently as I could, and I, th- I think it was gently. I mean, I, I ended up doing some other stuff with that family later on, so no bridges were burned, but I, I had to say, I, I don't know uh, your dad, it's clear to me that, that you don't want a Christian funeral and I'm a Christian minister. So I don't, I don't have a, a personal connection to your family and I don't have a pastoral connection to your family. I'm probably not the best person for you to be working with. And it might be that, you know, pastors are going to get, have to get used to having those kinds of conversations with people as, as part of living in that tension. I've gone a long way from your, your question, but I, th- I think that those kinds of conversations are simply just going to become more normal going forward. It actually starts to name some of the awkwardness that I think pastors can find themselves in whenever they are, let's say, still performing some of the vestiges of a Christendom model where the pastor was expected to have a presence at the funeral or the pastor was expected to have a presence at the wedding. So th- they're not they're not dissimilar in the the religious person showing up at these kinds of liminal moments, right? Where there's a transition happening. We sometimes have gotten used to the pastor being there, but that's becoming less and less. And so one of the temptations for pastors, and I, and I was certainly in this as well, is how do I still maintain a presence in my community? How do I still maintain a presence, especially when these opportunities come my way, right? I get a phone call from the funeral director that there's a family that needs some care and what has God called pastors to do, but care. And so there's a, there's already an inkling and probably a gifting and, and an instinct to go and care. And at the same time, there can be a foreignness to it, right? There's a foreignness to it. And how do we, as you said, recognize the foreignness and still discharge our duty faithfully and honestly, because we're not simply hired guns, right? We're not simply a person providing a professional service in this distinct moment. We have a calling that is to serve the Lord through the church. And here's a a family that hopefully there's some kind of connection that you're at least trying to build, but you want to do so faithfully and not in a way that further deteriorates their imagination about what the church is or about who the pastor is. Because whenever the pastor simply performs the religious service, it cements an improper imagination. It's an improper vision about who, who a pastor is and what they are to do. So your advice and your counsel for pastors to get straight in their own minds, who they are is right on. The other comment that comes to mind, I get this from Tim Tennant, but I think it applies here and really in any conversation around Christendom is you might say that uh, the reclamation of funerals is a, is a 50 year process. Oh, absolutely. It's not something that's going to be remade in the next week or two weeks. And so that's one of the reasons I I appreciate your chapter on 
being a catechist, right? The, the pastor is one who's teaching and there's a place of, of faithfully teaching through their action by being the president in the funeral, but there's yeah. also a place for the pastor to teach their congregation, to reteach them about death and about uh, what dying is, what dying isn't, and what it means for the Christian community to usher somebody who has recently departed into the company of the dead. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Talk to us about being the catechist. What, what does that mean? I, I, I think, I think your, your friend's remark about this being a 50-year project is, is, uh, is right on the money. There, there, are, there are kind of two tracks in the book, and they're, they're not tidally distinguished, but as a pastor, you, you get the call from the funeral director, and it could very well be someone you have absolutely no connection with at all. Or uh, it's someone who's uh, been in your church for 50 years, you know, was, was there before you were born, maybe, and, uh, and has sat under your ministry faithfully, and is, the family has, has been with you on this journey all the way through. I mean, you're obviously going to, you can't treat those situations as, as the same. In the latter case, you've got the, to use your friend's language again, you've got the 50-year time to teach them what's going on in Christian living and dying. And so your role as a catechist is going to be different with respect to a, a church family who's part of your parish than an emergency call. You've got to do teaching work with both people, both groups of people, but your, your friend is right. It, where this is going to bear fruit over the long term is not so much with the emergency call, which, which is important, and we can talk a bit about that in a minute, but it's, it's with the, the churched families who have unwittingly bought into a whole understanding of living and dying that is encapsulated in situation comedies, in movies, in the way we present the news, to use a, a pregnant example, in the way COVID is being reported and has been reported over the last two years that has very little to do with a Christian way of death. And it seems to me that, that pastors are being negligent in their duties. And I'm pointing four fingers squarely at myself before I'm pointing any one finger at anyone else. Uh, they're being negligent in their duties if they never get around to talking about that with their people because of the perception that death is uncomfortable, death is foreign, death is something we avoid. That's, that's one of the major planks of the secular way of death that we need to simply get past. The church should be a, a safe space to talk about dying because it comes to all of us. And, uh, you know, uh, our uncle, Hugh, uh, used to testify in church about the verse from Hebrews, it, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That is, in fact, a pregnant part of the Christian good news. When we hear that, we hear it as bad news, if we hear it at all. There's something wrong with that, that churched people and Christian pastors need to, you know, correct one of the gifts I think your book is, is that it provides guidance precisely in talking about some of those tough subjects. So you do have a chapter on hell, you do have a chapter on judgment, and approaching those 
with a gospel lens, right? What is the what is the good news that gives a rationale to think about hell? What is the good news that gives a rationale to think about what judgment is? Now, I want to delve into that in just a moment, and I'm going to I want to preserve one kind of practical question that maybe just walking people through what the actions and steps and postures might be for whenever they do get that call that somebody maybe in their church or outside their church has passed away, has died, and they want and they are called into service. So we'll save that practical question for the, the last one in just a moment. But I want to delve into just one aspect of hell, because I think that it really illustrates what so much of the challenge that that Christian faith is presented in a post-Christendom culture. So we think about the gospel, the good news, and it precisely is a gift, something that cannot be earned, something that God has undertaken to give without our merit, without our action, without our work, just simply the generosity of God to send the Lord Jesus, who is able to rescue us from a variety of predicaments that all can fall under the banner of capital S sin, that he rescues us from sin and it's a gift. In the chapter on hell, you talk about it's not a gift at all if it can't be rejected. It's not Mm -hmm. a gift at all if it can't be rejected. And I think a lot of what the temptation is for Christian faith in a post-Christendom culture is to stop thinking about itself as communicating the message of a gift And instead takes an apologetic route, which is we have to defend our place within the society. We have to defend our role and place, and we have to give an apologetic. And sometimes it takes the form of wisdom, right? This is how you live a better life. This is how you can make advances in your career. This is how you can form your home. And all of that can be be good. But if it's not founded squarely and securely on the notion that God has given the Lord Jesus to save us from sin, then all of that is simply good advice. None of it, none of it is good news. None of it has a sanctifying aspect to it. All of it is simply the preacher's own wisdom or best practices or, or whatever else. So in addressing this topic of hell, there's actually a way for us to think about and reclaim the gift of salvation, right? The gift that God has rescued us from a context that we would, without God's intervening act, would choose 100 times out of 100, right? We would, as St. Augustine said, we would be guides to our own downfalls if God didn't fell us and bring us back, uh, bring us back to him. So maybe talk to us a little bit about, about hell, right? How do you see hell as being seen through a gospel lens? How is hell, the proper reflection on hell, the result of God doing something good and salvific for us? How is hell good news? Well, the first place to start is hell is good news because it means that all that would harm God's good creation is finally destroyed. And so we ought to, I think, take great comfort in the words of the seer in the latter chapters of Revelation when he says uh, death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire along with the devil and the beast, right? God's great enemies who define their enmity by harming God's good creation and the crown of God's good creation, men and women, are destroyed. That's not a bad thing. That's something to be looked forward to. And so their destruction in Revelation is greeted with praise by the saints that might strike us as a little bit bloodthirsty. But I don't think it should. I think, you know, if if we greet, for instance, you know, when the Psalms 
you know, read through the lens of the gospel, talk about being, uh, imploring God to vindicate the psalmist from his enemies, or they talk about God providing victory over his enemies and his enemies being destroyed. Clicking our tongues at the bloodthirstiness of the psalmist is kind of hip and trendy and modern, but it rather misses the point. God's enemies don't win. That's great news. Uh, and so that's where you got to start. Hell is not, in the first instance, about human beings. And it's not, in the first instance, a threat. If you're a bad little boy or girl, this is where you'll go when you die. That kind of hell is, frankly, really easy not to believe in, not least because it's not the Bible. And I think when most people think of hell, I might be wrong, but I think when a lot of people think of hell, uh, if they think of it at all, that's the kind of hell they think of, right? That's encapsulated in the atheist bus uh, ad campaign. There probably is no God, so go ahead and enjoy your life. The good news of hell is God's enemies don't win. They are destroyed absolutely, utterly, and forever to the greater glory of God and to the salvation of human beings. And that's something to be happy about. The tragic dimension of hell has to do with the very giftedness of salvation that you talk about. And the troubling question is, can someone forever reject a gift? And there's been a minority report within Christian faith since at least the fifth century that says no, even earlier. Eventually, everyone will accept the gift, maybe up to and including the devil himself. You know, the traditional view is that it is possible for someone to indefinitely, permanently, forever say no to this gift. And I think, and I mean, this, this might strike your listeners as kind of odd, but I'm pretty sure it's not heretical. I think that for those people, hell is in fact a manifestation of grace. Because for someone who is determined to be outside God's embrace of love, hell is actually a more pleasant place to be than heaven. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite uh, moved. I'm not sure that I'm entirely convinced, but I'm, I'm quite moved by C.S. Lewis's uh, vision of, of hell in The Great Divorce as a place whose doors are always open, but people even in their minute misery uh, don't want to leave because heaven is actually worse or what heaven entry into heaven would require is regarded by them as, as too much to give up. And uh, you know, I'm particular because of my own vocation, I'm particularly moved by the Anglican Bishop who comes from his theological study group in hell to, to visit heaven. And uh, he refuses to go to heaven because it would limit his theological options. That is a, a riveting and profound warning that comes with human freedom. But I, I think it's part of the good news that God treats us as responsible moral agents. And for those who are determined forever to say no to God, there is a place for them. And however we seek to understand it, the name of that place, at least in the English language, is hell. Whenever it's 
phrase about the a place for the enemies of God to be and all that would be against God, rather than hell being something of the the Christian tisk, tisking and shaking their finger, rather than it being a teaching that is supposedly uh, about elevating Christians over everybody else, it ought to be one that is humbling the Christian. Absolutely. More than anybody else, the one who is actually plucked from enmity with God and made friends with God recognizes more clearly that they were enemies and were actually against God. All right. So Lewis and Augustine both have these warnings that the person who's being transformed is the one who's keenly aware of what they're being transformed from. And as a result, this this posture of, of rejoicing about hell is in part rejoicing that God has taken me from there, but is also humbling because God has taken me from there. Right. That is okay. that is how I would have been. What we're reflecting on is how good the good news is, is for me, not, not about rejoicing in the bad news for others, but it's, it's a, it's a humbling, right. And it should be as a result, a true theology of hell should be very mission driving, not, not in a kind of fear sense, but out of gratitude, right. Gratitude for what God has done for me is good news that there is a gift for me to tell others about that is life transforming and changing for them. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's why, you know, the, the most graphic language about hell in the New Testament doesn't come from Paul, even though Paul often gets saddled with it for reasons I, I still don't understand. Uh, the most graphic language for hell comes from Jesus, for example, in Matthew 13. And when Jesus speaks about hell, it's never to a centurion or a Gentile woman or, you know, a Samaritan. Uh, it is always to the presumptuous people of God always hell as a warning in the bible is never directed to the nations even the warnings of destruction for the nations is never directed to the nations it's always to the people of god that ought to frame how we talk about hell there is a certain kind of in-house language with respect to hell that is for God's people as a warning with respect to those, you know, outside the faith in, in genuine evangelistic encounter, a lot of the people that we're talking to don't need to be convinced that there's a hell because in some measure they're already in it. And they need to hear the good news that it doesn't need to be this way, that there is a gift, that there is a way out, that there is a key that unlocks the cell they've locked themselves in. And if they want to stay locked in them in that cell, well, okay, but there's still a way out, and I'm going to tell you about it. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in thus far in the podcast. We're going to push pause on this conversation right there and turn this into a two-part episode. So stay tuned for part two next week when we talk more about Funerals for the Care of Souls with Dr. Tim Perry. Thanks to Tim for tuning in and sharing his research and wisdom. Thank you listeners for tuning in and hopefully carrying some of this news and insight into your own ministries. Thanks, Connor, for your recording and editing work. Certainly appreciate all the work that you give to make the Wesley Seminary podcast possible. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. Today, we've been talking about funerals, and I think it is a fruitful ministry, maybe one that bears fruit years in advance, maybe even as we've been talking about a 50-year kind of fruit, but I think it will. 
especially as men and women like you listeners are faithfully discharging the call of God, perhaps as ordained clergy, or perhaps as lay leaders, or certainly as ones called into service to God to bear grief with those who are grieving. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay tuned for episode two next week. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.